Happy New Year once again, and welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. Today, we invite you to enjoy another special edition, an edited version of a conversation between award-winning British author Francis Wilson and Nigel Hamilton, a fellow biographer and former bio president. Francis Wilson's biography, Burning Man, The Trials of D.H. Lawrence, was awarded Bio's 2022 Plutarch Award, an award that recognizes the year's best biography. During the first session of Bio's Fall 2022 Book Club, Wilson and Hamilton spoke via Zoom on September 17th. I'm really honored to uh, be talking today with Frances Wilson about her prize-winning biography of one of my favorite authors, D.H. Lawrence, and the subtitle is The Trials of D.H. Lawrence. The committee who were reviewing almost 200 biographies really felt that this was the most outstanding biography, really the most, uh, certainly I feel this is probably one of the most original biographies I've ever read. And and that comes from the heart. And I have, as I say, read quite a few biographies in my time. I just loved it. I spent most of my biographical life writing about presidents and generals and action men, if you like. And I'm so envious, Francis, that you were able to write in a kind of warlike, dramatic way, (laughs) the story of D.H. Lawrence and his travels and his marriage. and But you've put it in uh, such a fascinating context, this Dante context. So I wondered if we could start by, if you could tell us how you came to that idea and perhaps explain a little of it to those who are looking at the book. Thank you. Well, the, um, I've structured the biography around Dante's Divine Comedy. And so it's three books. The biography is composed of three books, which I can originally thought might stand as independent books. The first one is called Inferno. The middle book is called Purgatory. And the final book is called Paradise. And the structure arose very organically because when I started to read Lawrence deeply, I kept coming across these references to the Inferno. And it was not necessarily Dante's Inferno. He just kept talking about his life as an Inferno. And this started with the way he was describing his childhood in Eastwood, the Nottingham Miningshire village he was born and brought up in. And he talked about his, his father and all the men in Eastwood going down to the Inferno every day, that miners went underground. Then I realised, of course, that for Lawrence, you know, he'd never met a man who didn't go underground during the day. I mean, all of his friends' fathers worked underground. It was only his teacher and his priest who didn't go underground, but they talked about the underground world all the time. And then realised that Lawrence continued using this image when he went on to describe his life in England during the First World War. 
over and over again in letters. He said, please get me out of this inferno. It is hell here in the underworld. And then <laughs> I thought, God, he's actually conceiving of the first part of his life as being this Dante-esque inferno experience. And what he was talking about during the war years was the burning of his first important novel, The Rainbow. And when, this was in 1915. The Rainbow was his great, big, bold, beautiful novel, as he described it. And it was censored by the magistrates in Bow Street Court. And 1,011 copies were publicly burnt by a hangman on the streets of London. And then, at which point, Lawrence's Inferno imagery got more and more and more dramatic. And then he described himself as completely trapped in England during the war, he'd fallen out violently with his country. And then after the war, he starts to use this imagery all the time of purgatory, that he's released from this um, dark, oppressive underworld of this tight England that he can no longer bear. And he's released into Italy and he starts describing his life as purgatorial, which is exactly what Ezra Pound said about um, the whole of the, the Western world after the First World War. He said the whole world was in purgatory after the First World War. And then Lawrence started talking about America as paradise, he had to get to America. And his poems about America are all about reaching paradise. And when he got there, of course, when he got to America, because he's Lawrence, he, he fell out with the country violently. But um, it struck me that there was something very curious going on with this imagery. It was as though Lawrence had um, consciously shaped his life around Dante's Inferno. And why wouldn't he? Because Lawrence saw himself as a mythical figure. Lawrence thought in symbols. Lawrence genuinely saw himself as a Christ figure. He identified profoundly with Dante because Dante was also an exiled poet who wrote in the vernacular. And so he, these identifications I think were very strong for him. And Lawrence saw his life as a work of art. He said, um, art for my sake, mm. art for my sake. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided that the best way of approaching Lawrence's life was to take him on his own terms. Francis, people will read the story you tell, but I think this is a chance for us to hear you perhaps talk about how you came. I mean, you've told us how you you came to the sort of idea of tackling, after all, there have been thousands of, I don't know, thousands, but many, many books about D.H. Lawrence. What to me was so original was this concept you had of putting it in that Dante-esque context. But what to me is so wonderful about the book is that you take it upon yourself, which is part of the species of biography, I think, of being our guide in telling us this extraordinary story of an artist <laughs> whose life is his art as, as well as his work. Um, you're not above arguing with previous authors or critics or whatever. You, you are the guide, our guide for D.H. Lawrence through these circles of hell, if you like. And um, tell us a more about that. How, your author's voice, if you like, how you came to that. Well, I think that um, you'll know this as a biographer, all biographers know this, that you have to change your voice with every book. 
Mm-hmm. Now, novelists tend to be able to grow their voice, and so the voice matures with each novel. But I think with biographers, you have to kind of reinvent your voice because you're having a conversation with the person you're writing about. Mm-hmm. And in order to have a conversation with Lawrence, it took me a long time to find the right voice because I didn't want to have an argument with him and Lawrence really only liked arguing. No, I'm going to listen to him. And so the, the, the voice as guide grew very organically. And I think again, it was the Dante-esque motif. I was guiding the reader through these circles of hell and purgatory and paradise. And I wanted to foreground Lawrence's voice. I wanted the reader to hear him because I I felt very strongly that everyone's heard of Lawrence and no one has read him because (laughs) the only thing, the only Lawrence that anyone has read have been the novels and then not even all the novels, just a few of the novels. Mm. I think Lawrence's most radical, most interesting voice resides in all the writing that's just been forgotten and all the writing in the writing in the peripheries. And so I wanted to show that Lawrence has this very, very complicated, rich, multivalent voice. And so bring that to the fore. And so again, that was difficult. I needed to keep my voice back. I don't think you did keep your voice back, but I, <laughs> I love that. I, I think biographers should do more in inserting themselves openly rather than simply by implication as the narrator of a story. But I felt you were fortunate in that if you were going to take uh, Lawrence through his circles of hell, he's also a, a great traveler. At one point, I think you call him a, the first drifter. <laughs> you know, he he goes from England to Italy. He has extraordinary adventures with people. And to me, the wonder of the book, as I say, I, I'm used to dealing with, with actions, but to me, the wonder of the book is in these relationships, such tortuous relationships he has with people. And in amongst all that, right from the very beginning, like you say, it, it starts with the trial of, of the, the rainbow, but right from the beginning, Frida, his wife, is almost the, you know, it's almost like a dual biography. She's there <laughs> in every scene. Uh, tell us more about Frida. Well, it has to be a dual biography, as you said, because Frida was never not there with Lawrence. From the moment he met her, Frida was in 1912. She was a permanent presence. And dealing with Lawrence and Frida reminded me of having a friend whose partner you don't like, but you always have to have them to dinner together. You always have to go on holiday with both of them. You know, you love him, you hate her, but you know, they're a Laurel and Hardy duo. They come together and I thought, right, I'm gonna have to put up with Frida. I can't pretend she's not in the room with him because he wouldn't be in the room unless she was there because he, people described him as disappearing without Frida's presence, his need of her was so powerful. And I actually really started to like her. But none of Lawrence's friends did like her. And that was that was important to take on board. They felt she was um, she was vulgar. She sat with her legs wide open. She smoked in his face when he was tubercular. She was ill-educated and raucous and all of these things. But the important thing is that Lawrence adored her and she was Lawrence's muse. And if Lawrence believed in the body, it was Frida's body he was believing in. And when he described Frida as being mindless, that was a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think all the way through the books, it's constantly 
surprising. You know, there's nothing predictable about it because in a sense, she's a wild woman. I mean, she's having sex with almost everybody she meets and, and he is having to deal with this. And to me, another wondrous part of the book is the way you look at his sexuality because we we live today, obviously, in, in a culture, a time when gender roles and people's sexuality is absolutely front and foremost in our concerns and um, legally as well as uh, psychologically. And this is a literary example slightly before our time. So in that sense, they are rather pioneers. And I mean, there are some set pieces in the book which just, <laughs> they're not necessarily more than two or three pages, but they just stunned me. And I mean, like the the day he goes to Cambridge to see E.M. Forster, just tell us that story. So Lawrence, the son of a miner, is invited to Cambridge University by Bertrand Russell to sit at high table. And Bertrand Russell has boasted to all of his academic friends that he's met an authentic man, that he's met a properly uneducated man who has a brilliant mind. So he wants to show Lawrence off because they're all socialists. He wants to show Lawrence off as kind of his... Um, as his discovery. And Lawrence, who has never, he's never been in an institution like Cambridge University, few of us have. So he's very, very nervous about it. And when he arrives, he's seated in this candlelit dinner, imagine kind of Hogwarts Hall or something, and Lawrence sitting at, at high table, having conversation about the um, higher mathematics and philosophy and holding his own really, really well and privately mocking. He did very good impersonations of all the, um, of all the Oxford Dons afterwards. And then after dinner, he goes to the room of Maynard Keynes with Bertrand Russell. And Keynes isn't anywhere to be seen. It's a suite of rooms, so it's a kind of living room with a bedroom coming off it. And Keynes isn't anywhere to be seen. And then Keynes's bedroom door opens and Keynes comes out looking quite sleepy and wearing his pyjamas. At which point, Lawrence has a complete meltdown and he describes himself as going, as sinking into a madness from which she will never, ever recover. I mean, he loses it, he goes home, he falls into a coma of misery and he writes letters about his madness. And you think, well, what did you see? What did you see? Because Lawrence never describes exactly what it was that kind of um, that affected him so deeply. And it's obviously something to do with homosexuality. Mm. He suddenly realised that Keynes had a homosexual life. And of course, Lawrence knew about homosexuality. He'd written novels in which beautiful young men kind of wash and dry each other's backs after swimming and things. So it was very, it was very odd that he remembered this as his first completely traumatic experience. But everything about this scene is interesting because of what Lawrence says he knows and what Lawrence says he doesn't know. Lawrence was homosexual. We kind of know this. Yeah. You know, he was. He was incredibly interested in, um, in male sexuality. He was really only interested in male sexuality. His understanding of female sexuality, which I would say was profound, came of talking to Frida mm. about women's bodies and what women want. And Frida was a kind of liberated woman. But what interested him, what he found erotically fascinating was the male. And so part of Lawrence's incredibly conflicted, and everything about Lawrence was conflict. And 
one of the important things I've found in writing about him is never to try and resolve those conflicts because they weren't resolved in him. Lawrence was both profoundly homophobic and homosexual at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, no, to me, that's the, the marvel of the book that you yourself are not, I mean, I think possibly too many biographers do try to come down on one side or another and you allow Lawrence to be this very, I mean, you you quote him being having self one and self two. Well, he probably had more than those two. And, you know, you bring out the, the complexity of his relationships. I mean, the one, when rereading the book, since I read it for the prize, you know, I, I was, when I read it for the prize, I thought that the part about uh, Norman Douglas and Maurice, um, Maurice Magnus. Magnus was slightly long, but when I reread it, in terms of this question mark about his divided feelings about men and, and homosexuality is an absolutely fascinating part of that. Uh, I'm not sure if it was purgatory at that point or the inferno, but I think it's purgatory. But I do think that the book takes us on this journey to different cultures. Uh, it both illustrates D.H. Lawrence's wonderful ability to describe landscape and places, but it allows uh, us to read a very varied story. I mean, they, they, these are hugely different cultures. And just going back to the English culture and his concern about uh, the snobbery, being a minor's son. I mean, that to me, again, we live in a society today where people are very conscious of about class and and those divisions that people impose in their lives and their uh, communities and um i feel that in that sense he's he's an an escape artist really he's he's always trying to get away from the fact that people are looking down their noses in him in, in england and you have a wonderful scene i was just looking for it but i couldn't find it perhaps you can remind me where they there is a sort of a luncheon party that his friends give for him and then he gets drunk and vomits. <laughs> yes. And people say he's not a gentleman. You know, it's yes, yes. So the phrase about him not being a gentleman was implied when the Cambridge Dons were talking about Lawrence's visit. And one of the Dons said, oh, he's the first real man I've ever met, which is a very funny description of Lawrence because he's an extremely high voice and no muscle at all and was very camp and feline so he wasn't a real man at all in that sense but what they meant was he's not a gentleman and I think it's absolutely vital to remember that in every stage of Lawrence's life he had to deal with snobbery and I didn't think that Lawrence's earlier biographers had taken this on board sufficiently. The kind of snobbery that the snobbery that was around in um, in Edwardian England was staggering and stifling. And Lawrence was the first working class novelist. And this is what his editors wanted him to write about. They wanted him to not write kind of middle class novels, which the novels he started writing initially were middle class novels and the kind of pastoral a little bit like Thomas Hardy they wanted him to write sons and lovers they wanted him to describe what it was like being inside a collier's cottage and then he turned himself into this working class hero Birkin Birkin the mansplainer of the century and so but Lawrence wanted to escape 
from mm. being working class in his novels. But um, his editors wanted to kind of pin him down as a working class novelist. And one escape he found was through Frieda because Frieda was an aristocrat and Lawrence loved that, you know, that Frieda's father was a baron mm. and had airs and graces and Frieda's rudeness, she was a fantastically rude woman, was her bohemian aristocracy. And so at the same time as being um, very, very proud, a proud son of a working miner, Lawrence was also the proud husband of a baroness, which I think is quite a gay thing. <laughs> yeah. But the snobbery with which people um, spoke to Lawrence, there's a wonderful description of him by David Garnett, where he said Lawrence was a mongrel amongst Pomeranians and Alsatians. A mongrel amongst Pomeranians and Alsatians. He said he had a vulgar nose and he was like the plumber's mate. This is how people <laughs> saw Lawrence. Uh, well, you deal with that so well, and it is such an important aspect of Lawrence that I think it helps that you're an English author, <laughs> that you're sensitive to that, whereas somebody else might not be. What about the business, if we're talking about escapism, of his fantasies of communities, of, of kind of free love communities? Because, again, that's, uh, you know, that's in our culture today, the, the notion that we could somehow, if not make America great again, we could f find a sort of perfect community. But in his case, he seems to have been completely serious about that. Yes. So this is, um, this fantasy was born in 1915 when the rainbow was first banned. Lawrence um, wanted to set up a community called Renarmin ran Armin and it was going to be run by him and it was going to be <laughs> equals except that he would be the leader and he wanted it to be in Florida initially. They would all fly out to Florida and everyone would live off the land and I think probably a bit naked and, <laughs> and it would be free love and whatever and he asked literally everyone he met to join him so you'd, you'd be talking to Lawrence and 10 minutes later he'd be saying come and join me in Renarmin because he didn't know anyone and so he had to make his community very quickly and nobody came. Nobody came. No one was interested in giving up absolutely everything for Lawrence, except Frida, who followed Lawrence around the world while he tried to set up this ideal community. But the community got more and more and more kind of absurd as Lawrence's messianic notions mm. grew. That In the end, he was Christ and they were his disciples. Yeah, and he was impossible to live with, you say, at one point. Yeah, he became completely impossible. And it was because he was dying and... You know, people are angry when they're always angry when they're dying. And yeah. so Lawrence was trying to um, trying to live very, very, very intensively. And I didn't know how, mu how much longer he had to go. But you cannot underestimate how much Lawrence hated the modern world. Mm. When he traveled, he was time traveling. He was trying to get back to the world before civilization. So he idealized the medieval way of life. Mm. He idealized cavemen. And his view of medieval life was um, men and women without brains. He thought Renaissance had destroyed the human being because the Renaissance had ushered in self-consciousness. So he hated Renaissance art because everyone was looking at themselves being looked at and there was too much intelligence going on in their head. He liked simple medieval art because it was just square bodies plowing and that kind of thing so he was um, his whole life was an escape 
from the brain and into the life of the body. The big irony being that mm. his body was killing him. And so yes. of all Laurentian contradictions, that's the maddest one. He believed that we should listen to the intelligence of the body, but his body was saying from you know, the age of five or six, you are dying of tuberculosis. And he didn't listen to it. He always said he had a cold, never that he was consumptive. Yeah, because you have somebody quite early in the book uh, noticing that he's coughing blood into a handkerchief. Yes. And I mean, and later in the book, you say that he was resisting until I think he was told by a doctor that uh, he was tubercular, but he'd resisted that diagnosis all those years. How is that possible? Well, he did it by, um, by redesigning the body. I think it would be really interesting <laughs> to have a map of the Laurentian body. He saw, for example, the, um, the unconscious was an organ a physical organ like like the kidneys and it was placed behind the solar plexus in fact it was part of the solar plexus which is an organ which is part of what you no one thinks of anymore now the lungs which of course were what which were infected with tuberculosis for him he saw as um <laughs> as destroyed by love so he saw tuberculosis as being the pressure of a mother's love on the lungs and wow. so the reason he couldn't breathe was because his mother had oppressed him. And it was so it's the heart pressing onto the lungs. It's absolutely bonkers. But it wasn't that bonkers because quite a few theosophists believed in Lawrence's version of the body. But by redesigning the body in the way that he did, he got around medical science. And so by coughing up blood, he didn't see this as a symbol of you know, his imminent death. He saw it as probably as a symbol of being loved too much by his wife. Mm. He managed to kind of completely dodge his death until he was on his deathbed. And just as he was dying in the south of France, aged 44 in 1930, his last letter to Aldous Huxley said, Huxley, this place is no good. He was planning to move on to go back to America. So he just thought the more he moved, the higher the altitude he got, the longer he'd live. You're very good, I think, on ironies <laughs> in the story. And uh, you have a wonderful ending in terms of his ashes. Oh, the ashes, God, yes. Well, the book sort of began with this story about the ashes because I was told this extraordinary anecdote by a friend of mine. When I said to her, I'm, I'm writing about D.H. Lawrence, she said, did you know that they ate him? I said, well, who, no, who ate him? And she said, these three women in Taos <laughs> ate Lawrence. And what three women? I don't understand. And then she put me on to her sister-in-law who'd heard this story when she was traveling in Taos in the eighties that, um, that Mabel Dodge Luhan and Frida and co had sat down and eaten Lawrence's ashes. And then I sort of God, this is really extraordinary. And then started looking into this and realized that there were so many myths about the ashes, so many myths. And, um, Lawrence's ashes have been buried in Vance and then dug up under Frieda's, um, because of Frieda's wishes, burnt, the ashes carried to America where they've been lost several times en route 
the towers and then then they'd been stolen well they were threatened to be stolen by Mabel Dodge Luhan who was also in love with Lawrence and so Frida said that she got her husband to stir them into the cement of the Lawrence Memorial Chapel which she may or may not have done because everyone else said that they satinate them which I think I think it's very satisfying the thought of Lawrence being eaten I think going back into the body going back into the female body in his imagery it would have worked very well well it's a it's a wonderful ending to the book and uh I think this is a book that will last forever I I think it's um it's written with your passionate interest in the subject so that you feel the story is completely fresh and it's fresh because you see it so freshly it's a, it's a, a wonderful achievement and a, it's not that uh, any book is necessarily a model for other books because each book like you said you know you you adopt a new voice and you you kind of start again but it is terrific and um the women i mean he did draw quite a <laughs> Within the circle of hell, he, he, he attracted a number of women who who did adore him. I mean, who and certainly you point out the number of people who who seem to to kind of want to be close to Lawrence in order to write about him. It, it may be a silly question, but were these people drawn to him? Because I knew once many years ago a lady in Greenwich, London, who met him when she was a teenager and she she'd been visiting a friend in Highgate and he came into the room and she said he had a halo wow. she, she just said he I mean you know yes she's impressionable adolescent but she would never forget it so for her you know he did carry that aura if you like but was that what uh, women were drawn to or or was it his writing which I never met him, so I just, I love his writing. Well, Frida certainly wouldn't have said he had a halo. Frida has <laughs> mocked Lawrence all the time. And she yeah. said, you know, call yourself a phoenix, you're more like an emu. <laughs> and um, so she, that relationship worked because she didn't take him seriously at all. But I think that other, yes, I think lots of other women, the women who flocked around Lawrence did see him as a mystical semi-religious figure. And I think that has to be because, I mean, the appeal he had has to be because he was so untraditionally male. I mean, he had authority, but he also had this very, very deeply sensitive side. Remember, he was a man who was fantastically close to his mother mm. and who really talked to women. He really talked to them. And so the reason that his female characters live so much on the page is because he had such a searching relationship mm. with women, not because he was interested in them, but because he was interested in writing well. His women are so much better than his men who are completely, completely wooden. Yeah. But um, I can imagine, you know, if, if Lawrence were around now, I'd follow him and he'd loathe me because I'm not his type. But um... <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, it was in many ways an easy book to research because everything has been published. All of Lawrence's letters are already published and they've been very, very well edited. And also there have been such good biographies of Lawrence. And so I was very dependent on the three volume Cambridge 
biography of Lawrence for the facts and the dates for uh, just getting all the information in exactly the right order so, because what I wanted to do was a reinterpretation and so mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for new material I was looking for a new way in to understand what it was like being Lawrence and what um, what I decided to do was to to research the book only by reading everything I could find by people who had met Lawrence. Mm. And so I didn't read any academic articles and I, I, I tried to keep it as unacademic as possible. But luckily, almost everyone who met Lawrence, even if they just met Lawrence for half an hour, wrote a memoir about it. Mm. So there are about 30 of these accounts of meeting Lawrence. So I decided to home in on those and then to see what Lawrence had written about everyone that he met and then start a kind of start a conversation there. And yes, Mabel Dodge's Lawrence in um, Lorenzo in Taos is a superb book, I thought. It was just fascinating. I loved Mabel Dodge and what she wrote about Lawrence, I thought was brilliant. And what he wrote about her was unbelievably savage. But when, when, when you get into that stage, <laughs> stage of the story, it, you know, I was sort of levitating much of the time. But I found the research was very dependent on something I call method biography, which I've never had to do before, but where I had to go to every place that Lawrence went to in order to write that scene. I'd never found this before. With writing about Thomas de Quincey, for example, in my previous book, I just sat at my desk because Thomas de Quincey did everything on opium. And so there was, all of his journeys were inward. And so I didn't need to, unless I'd written on opium, which I didn't, I need, didn't need to go where he went. But with Lawrence, I needed to go to every single house he'd lived in, in order to um, really soak up that experience because his sense of place was mm. so preternatural. And also he lived in such God almighty shacks he always described himself as living in great comfort, but he lived in in tree houses on the top of the Rockies, you know, and needed to see this and also to get the sense of his journey up because his journey, his journey to paradise was very much a kind of vertical rise. And the more I traveled around the world looking at where Lawrence lived, the more my ears popped, you know, it was just the altitudes he ended up in was so extraordinary. So it was very much a kind of travel biography, which I wasn't planning on. I thought this was something I could write from my desk and then thought, oh, I can't. That's why there are examples in biography of writers who have slept on the, I'm sure Richard Holmes is one, who've slept on the graves of their authors. I admit I've always rather mocked that, but now I'm writing about Lincoln. I'm visiting all the Civil War battlefields and I do feel um, I don't need it in terms of my describing the place, but I need it to help me understand something about in my own mind what happened there and the significance. Yeah. It changes the atmosphere of the writing. Yeah. Once you've been there. And I think it's important to um, to know exactly what your subject knew and to see what they had seen. They wouldn't see it in the same way as you, but try to see it as mm. they saw it. And that feeds into, into the fabric of the book and gives it, a, um, gives it a density, I think, which is important. I wanted to flesh out characters who appeared in the official biographies just in a paragraph or two. For example, Morris Magnus, mm. who, um, Morris Magnus and Norman Douglas, who kind of star in the, um, in the middle section. I was fascinated 
by them, as you can tell, because I couldn't stop writing about them. But Morris Magnus, if he's mentioned at all in the other biographies, is a footnote. Mm. And when I started reading about him, I thought, God, this footnote is a novel. In fact, the whole book was going to be just about Lawrence and Morris Magnus because it was such a such a strange story. And because Lawrence wrote the memoir of uh, Morris Magnus, and it was the first kind of biographical writing that Lawrence had done. And it was such an incredibly weird piece of biographical writing, but very thrilling. And I wanted to see what he would do with life writing. And so it, so it started off looking at these bit players in Lawrence's life and fleshing them out. And, and then I started getting interested in all the bit players like HD and, um, and Mabel Dodge. But I've always been interested in minor characters. I think all the minor characters in Jane Austen are the best, richest characters. And the minor characters in Dickens are always the richest. I love the thought of, of writing about, writing a whole life just of minor people, in, people in the margins of someone's life. Could I just pick up on that, uh, Maurice Magnus, because it, I think, you know, the, like I say, when I went back to it, I thought, you know, this is so revealing or surprising to some extent about Lawrence himself, because he's, he, he doesn't just take this relationship and then throw it away. Often he's uh, you know, pretty draconian in that way. But, you know, he, he sticks around and he tries to help. And, you know, what... What was going on there, in, do you think, in your mind? Uh, you know, is it that this was, Frida wasn't there? Frida but, was away, so Lawrence could play, yes. But yeah. you're absolutely right that this is, um, this was a reversal of Lawrence's normal relationship, because Morris Magnus had no interest in Lawrence. It was Lawrence who pursued and so the tables were turned here. Yes, exactly. And he was, uh, he was fascinated by Magnus's homosexuality. He was a very camp man, Magnus. He was fascinated by it. And this was the first homosexual he'd met since Cambridge. Yeah. So he'd evolved from the man who kind of was left reeling seeing, um, seeing a gay man in Cambridge. And he now could not get enough of Morris Magnus's presence. And it was very exciting. I think for me, it was exciting that Frida wasn't there and you could look at what Lawrence might yeah. be like a homosexual. Lawrence around the homosexuals rather than Lawrence being inside his marriage. Yeah, Lawrence being um, much, much more interested in someone than they were in him. Right. Was one off. Yeah, because he's always, as you say in the book, you know, everybody refers to, I think Frida once complains that everybody only ever calls him a genius, you know. <laughs> what about me i'm a genius too <laughs> yes or might they not say well he's an interesting man or he's you know that refer to like you say he was a great imitator and so forth. but it's he's always has to be a, the genius lawrence and of course you know he's he went out of fashion and you know another to me great quality of this book is that you've i think brought him back into fashion by looking into an aspect of his persona, his, his, his life as art, with this sort of passionate curiosity, so that even though he's by no means a, a modern man, <laughs> nevertheless, the issues that he's dealing with and, and with Frieda and whatever are very much stories of our time. And you think, why is he rather forgotten? Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it, the way that Lawrence comes into and out of 
focus and into and out of fashion because we can't actually get rid of him. We keep, yeah. <laughs> no, we keep censoring him, burning him, cancelling him, taking him off the syllabus, but everyone's still heard of D.H. Lawrence and everyone still has a strong reaction to him. And I think that even if they've never read him, yeah. I think what's most fashionable about him now or what makes him most pertinent to readers now is what he says about the body that when he said, I mean, for all his bonkers views about the body, he said a really intelligent thing, which was that the body has an intelligence. Mm. Body knows something. We live much more deeply and profoundly in our bodies than we'll acknowledge. And I think this is very much what younger generations, my daughter's generation, is trying to express now. You know, that our, our bodies have a life. Our bodies have their own sense of their gendered identity and we need to listen. We can't intellectualize everything. And I think Lawrence would have been completely on message mm. at the moment. Ironically, of course, as you say in the book, this was a man who hated to be touched. He hated could, yeah. to have body touch. <laughs> For all I know. <laughs> Just so full of contradictions. But that is to me why his life is so fascinating. I knew from um, I knew from the time I could first read that I only really wanted to read biographies and autobiographies, and I you know, I read across you know I read novels and poetry too, but I was really fascinated, obsessively interested in life stories, and I think it was the combination of truth and art. I mm. love the fact that you could deal with painful realities in a graceful way. Well, there just seemed to be something about the um, the trickery of the form that fascinated me. And it comes very, very naturally. I'm much happier when I'm in a biography than I am when I'm not writing a biography. I think this is the case for all biographers that we feel happier living someone else's life. And in that sense, biographers have absolutely nothing in common with autobiographers. <laughs> I could never write an autobiography, but give me someone else's life to absorb myself in and I'll be happily there for a decade. How very interesting, yeah. The book began as a book about Lawrence and Morris Magnus. I wanted to write entirely about Lawrence after the war, meeting this extraordinary man in Florence and what went on between them, this sort of black and white flickery jerky film relationship they had. And then it evolved and I realized that the imagery was getting very, very purgatorial. And then the whole shape started to emerge. So it was very organic. And there was no drafting process really. I just started rewriting every day. <laughs> so every day I would erase what I'd done the day before and push it all in a different direction until I stopped. I think that's the way that computer writing works now. You know, you just kind of refresh, you rethink. It's very palimpsestic. But, you know, the way you shaped it in the three sections and within those sections, the sort of chapters of... Did that happen organically as you were as you were working yes. on it, or did you look back at the end and then say, "Here, I, this should be a new section"? Or, well, what I wanted was to um, have um, three books in a case, so I wanted it to look like the copy I have of the Divine Comedy, where it's three books in a little case. But my publishers didn't like that idea, and so understandably. So they said, keep the three books within the same volume and try and blend them together 
more than you've already done. Because I wanted, you know, for there to be no mention of Morris Magnus ever again after Purgatory, mm -hmm. just got a new Lawrence in a new life. So Lawrence in America bore no relation to Lawrence in Italy and Lawrence in Italy bore no relation to Lawrence in England because I was struck by the way that Lawrence was a different person in every country. He reinvented himself all the time. And then um, thought that was kind of pushing it a bit because it, what, his life wasn't that episodic. There was some fluidity. Mm -hmm. So the stories did blend into one another more than I'd initially planned. Mm -hmm. Well, Francis, I insist that I am allowed to do trilogies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Much easier. <laughs> Persuading them, I guess, is really difficult. All right. Well, I'll say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your time. That was BIOS 2022 Plutarch Award winner, Francis Wilson, in conversation with former BIO president and Plutarch Award committee chair, Nigel Hamilton. They spoke on September 17th last year via Zoom as part of BIO's virtual book club. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.